0: This is a recording of In This Battered Caravanserai by Daniel C. Peterson, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Daniel C. Peterson. Abstract In the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, based upon verses composed by an 11th century Persian mathematician and astronomer, the English Victorian poet Edward Fitzgerald eloquently portrays human life in an indifferent, deterministic universe, that lacks any evident purpose and is bereft of divine providence. The poem's suggested response to such a universe is an unambitious life of hedonism, distraction, and gentle despair. It is curiously modern, and those considering the adoption of anything like its worldview might want to read it and to think about its implications very carefully. This too-long essay tries to set forth one perspective on a life lived without a religious faith broadly approximating the restored gospel. In order to do this, I'll be quoting extensively from a once widely read and still somewhat famous poem called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. It was written, depending on your point of view, in either early 12th century Persia or late 19th century England. More on that question later. Let me first introduce the two men involved in its production, Omar Khayyam and Edward Fitzgerald. The first of them, Riyath al-Din Abulfat Omar ibn Ibrahim Nizaburi, was a Persian mathematician, astronomer, and philosopher, and at least nominal Muslim, who also wrote poetry. As his name indicates, he was born in Nishapur, Khurasan, which is to say in modern-day northeastern Iran, on the 18th of May, 1048, thereafter spending at least part of his childhood in Balkh, which is located in modern Afghanistan. In the English-speaking world, he is most commonly known as Omar Khayyam. The second element of that nickname, Chayam, means something like tent maker. It wasn't really a surname in his time, though. Rather, it was a byname from his father's craft or from that of some family ancestor. Many of our modern Western surnames, for example, Farmer, Carpenter, Smith, forester, Cooper, Bridger, Sawyer, Weaver, Carrier, Porter, Bauer, and Zimmerman or Zimmerman, have similar origins. Khayyam, as I often call him, was educated in Samarkand and then moved to Bukhara, both of which are located within the borders of modern Uzbekistan. It is said that he was extremely hardworking. By day, he taught algebra and geometry. In the evening, he attended the Seljuk court as an advisor to Sultan Malik Shah I. At night, he studied astronomy and worked on a revised calendar that had been commissioned by The Sultan after a very productive life of 83 years, he died on the 4th of December 1131 in his home city of Nishapur. His younger compatriot, Farid Dinatar, who lived about 1145 to 1220, one of the greatest of Persian mystical poets, is buried in the same cemetery as Khayyam Khayyam is known for his treatise on demonstration of problems of algebra, written in the year 1070, as well as for treatises on mechanics, geography, mineralogy, and music. The sciences were less specialized in those days. There were fewer scientists and much less scientific literature to master before one could launch one's own career. In his astronomy work, khayyam argued, among other things, that the stars are stationary and that the universe doesn't revolve around the Earth. He is particularly famous for his work on calendrical reform, which I've already mentioned. The resulting Jalali calendar, as it is often known, has been in use since the 11th century. It was reformed in the 20th century, but it is still used in Iran and Afghanistan. One of the reasons for this is that it is more accurate than the Gregorian calendar, the dominant Western calendar since it was created five centuries after khayyam's The Gregorian year is 365.24 days, whereas Omar khayyam measured the length of a terrestrial year out to 365.24219858156 days. Along the way, perhaps, in spare moments, Chaim also wrote brief verses on scraps of paper. These are, in modern transliteration, his rubaiyat, or quatrains, four-line stanzas. Some of them seem to form a sequence, most of freestanding, and their fragmentary character raises other questions, perhaps unanswerable ones. Are they all his? How can we know? Should they be published in any particular order? If so, what order? It is these poems, largely as transmitted to the world by Edward Fitzgerald, that have created Omar Khayyam's modern image as an agnostic freethinker and a hedonist. Accordingly, numerous bars and nightclubs are named after him around the globe. I still remember an excited young man who approached me some years ago after a lecture on Islam that I had delivered at a university in Vancouver, British Columbia. The young man was, as I had guessed, of Iranian origin, but he had spent most of his life in Canada. He was also, he proudly affirmed, an atheist, and he said Omar Khayyam was an atheist too, and his hero. I pushed back. It's far from clear to me that Omar Khayyam was an agnostic, let alone an atheist. For example, he wrote a treatise on the praise of God, God called Al-Khutb al-Ghara, the splendid sermon that seems to be Islamically orthodox, and he appears to have agreed with the great philosopher Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, on the nature of God's unity, a rather strange thing for an atheist to profess. According to Khayyam's philosophy of mathematics, moreover, God is the ultimate source of order in the universe, and in fact, mathematics itself. Now, though, to Khayyam's great translator, Edward Fitzgerald, 1809 to 1883. He was an English gentleman of literary inclinations and independent fortune who developed a strong interest in what the British of the time called the Orient, meaning the Near East or the Middle East. By far, his most famous work is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam which made its first muted appearance in Victorian England in a private publication in 1859. Gradually, though, it gained followers, popularity, and fame. I've even heard it said that it was Edward Fitzgerald who introduced the poetry of Omar Khayyam to the people of modern Persia or Iran. Khayyam had been known to his countrymen as a mathematician and a master of calendrics, but not particularly as a poet. Persian poetry is one of the greatest bodies of literature in any language, but Overshadowed by such luminaries as Ferdowsi, Sa'adi, Hafez, Attar, Nizami, and Rumi, Omar Khayyam was not regarded as an especially significant practitioner of the art. Eventually, Edward Fitzgerald authorized four editions of his continually changing English translation during his lifetime, 1859, 1868, 1872, and 1879, and a significant posthumous edition was published in 1889. When I refer to the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, I'm referring to Fitzgerald's translation of Chayam's Rubaiyat, and I'll specifically be using the posthumous fifth edition. Edward Fitzgerald was an almost exact contemporary of Charles Darwin, who lived 1809 to 1882, who had published his pivotally important book On the Origin of Species in 1859, the same year in which the Rubaiyat of Armachayam appeared. Darwin's The Descent of Man, which expressly applied his theory to the evolution of humankind, appeared in 1871. For many Victorians, Darwin's theory dealt a body blow to their traditional religious beliefs. It seemed to many to suggest that God is unnecessary in creation, and that the world, including the lives of the humans who dwell upon it, is governed not by divine providence, but instead by random, purposeless, pitiless chance. Edward Fitzgerald seems to have been a religious skeptic himself, he was certainly a deliberate non-churchgoer in an age of fashionable church attendance. I'll illustrate that religious skepticism by extensive quotations from his Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. but another really fine example of the spiritual mood among many eminent Victorian intellectuals is to be found in the famous poem Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, 1822 to 1888, a slightly younger contemporary of both Fitzgerald and Darwin. I quote it here in its entirety. The sea is calm to-night, the tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast the light gleams and is gone, the cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air, only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles, which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high, sta- high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin, with tremulous cadence slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean, and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled but now I only hear its melancholy long-withdrawing roar retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy nor love nor light nor certitude nor peace nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. It is not, perhaps, the most upbeat or optimistic piece of writing in English literature. Back, though, to the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, I begin by relating a personal experience from graduate school many decades ago that I continue to find instructive. One morning, I was attending a small seminar on early Arabic poetry at the University of California at Los Angeles. Suddenly, the teacher, Professor Segar Bonabaker, launched into an aside on the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which he pronounced to be arguably the single worst and most dishonest translation that he had ever encountered from any language of the Islamic Near East. And he definitely had a point. A student of Persian, the language that Omar Khayyam used in writing his poetry, who tried to match any particular passage of Edward Fitzgerald's translation with any single passage of Khayyam's original, would find the task difficult, if not altogether impossible. Fitzgerald's English uh, English rendition is, to put it mildly, a free and loose approximation of Khayyam's Persian. I was enrolled during that same quarter in a seminar on classical Persian literature that was taught by Professor Amin ben that evening, and I suppose by sheer coincidence, I was the only person who was enrolled in both classes, Professor ben launched suddenly into an aside on the Rubeyat of Omar Khayyam, which he pronounced perhaps the single finest translation that he had ever encountered from any language of the Islamic Near East. What Edward Fitzgerald had accomplished, he rhapsodized, was to write a poem in English that, although it wasn't a literal rendition of Khayyam's medieval verses, reflected both the quality and at least some of the spirit and feel of the Persian original. Inspired by the work of a medieval Iranian polymath and poet, Fitzgerald had created a work of art that powerfully spoke to his own era, and that has remained an important landmark in the history of 19th century English literature. I've thought about that day and about those curiously juxtaposed professorial opinions ever since. They represent for me important lessons on the question of what constitutes translation. Is there such a thing, for instance, as a perfect translation? I think not. But even the question of whether a translation is a good one is complicated. Answering it depends partially on what one is seeking in a translation. I've seen overly literal published translations from Greek and Arabic poetry, They are largely gibberish, what my former Brigham Young University colleague, Dilworth B. Parkinson, calls word salad. I've seen fairly literal translations of Omar Khayyam's verses. They possess little or no literary quality, but they might be helpful to an English-speaking student of Greek or Arabic or Persian who is trying to understand the poems in their original language, a purpose for which Edward Fitzgerald's rendering would be essentially useless. I once spent some time with a German translation of William Shakespeare's tragedy, Hamlet. It, was, it very accurately transmitted the meaning of Shakespeare's verses. It certainly would have enabled a reader of German to follow and understand the plot of the play, its storyline. But the translation's lucid and workmanlike German suggested virtually nothing of Shakespeare's peerless mastery of the richness of Elizabethan English, which is surely one of the great glories of his plays and his sonnets. Such an experience illustrates for me the truth of a witty definition that I once encountered somewhere. Poetry, noun that which cannot be translated. Poetry composed in another language must, in my view, be recreated in order to be fully translated, which is to say that the translator should probably be at least as talented, literarily speaking, as the author whose work he or she is attempting to reproduce in a second language, a miracle that rarely, if ever, actually occurs. For many non-literary works, for example, technical manuals, instructions for assembling children's toys, or even prosaic mystery novels, that doesn't represent an insuperable hurdle. For translating Shakespeare, though, it's a very high bar. And I flatly think it impossible, simply given the differences in the languages, for a translator to represent the Quran's pervasive rhyming, or the terza rima of Dante, Dante Alighieri's Divina Commedia in any English that wouldn't be excruciatingly painful to read or to hear for more than a minute or two. But Edward Fitzgerald may well have cleared the bar for Omar Khayyam. From this point on, though, I will be working from Fitzgerald's 5th edition translation of Khayyam's Rubaiyat as my primary text, treating it as if it were the original, which for my purposes it actually is, since this really isn't an essay on Persian literature or Omar Khayyam and I'll refer to it in the singular as a single poem, which isn't strictly true. Along the way, I'll offer brief commentary and, where necessary, explanatory notes. I begin by sharing selected verses from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that express skepticism about religious claims and about religion itself. In the very first passage, Fitzgerald refers to the two worlds. He's on solid Islamic grounds in doing so. Already in the opening chapter of the Quran. God is described as the Lord of the worlds. Typically, two such worlds are distinguished. Adunya, this world or this life, literally the nearer, and El-Akhira, the next world or the next life, literally the further. Now to Chayam. Why all the saints and sages who discussed of the two worlds so wisely, they are thrust like foolish prophets forth, their words to scorn are scattered and their mouths are stopped with dust. Myself, when young, did eagerly frequent doctor and saint, And heard great argument about it and about, But evermore came out by the same door wherein I went. With them the seed of wisdom did I sow, And with mine own hand wrought to make it grow, And this was all the harvest that I reaped. I came like water, and like wind I go, Into this universe, and why not knowing, Nor whence, like water willy-nilly flowing, And out of it, as wind along the waste, I know not whither, Willy nilly blowing. The point, of course, is that nobody really knows anything. Not even those who confidently profess the most wisdom and learning. Not even purported prophets. The film Men Search for Happiness, produced for the uh, Mormon Pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City, posed and purported to answer such questions as Who am I? Where did I go? Where did I come from? Where am I going? The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam declares that nobody can answer those questions. All that we can know is that life passes quickly, we are transient, soon to be forgotten, and other than the grave we have no idea where we are headed. There was the door to which I found no key, there was the veil through which I might not see, some little talk awhile of me and thee there was, and then no more of thee and me. Of threats of hell and hopes of paradise, one thing at least is certain, this life flies. One thing is certain and the rest is lies. The flower that once has blown forever dies. Strange is it not that of the myriads who before us passed the door of darkness through, not one returns to tell us of the road which to discover we must travel too. The revelations of devout and learned who rose before us and as prophets burned are all but stories which awoke from sleep they told their comrades, and to sleep returned." This last is a familiar and very old literary motif, and it reflects our overwhelmingly sad usual experience. Even the prophet Lehi uses it, speaking of the cold and silent grave from whence no traveler can return. To a believing Latter-day Saint, however, the claim is ultimately untrue. The resurrected angel Moroni appeared at the very inauguration of the Restoration, as did John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, and others. And, of course, the supreme counterexample is Jesus himself, who rose from the dead on the third day. Moreover, from outside his scripture, one might also mention accounts of near-death experiences, which by now are documented in the tens of thousands. In the next selections, which emphasize the message that, well, we're doomed, the poem refers to the prominent Persian city in which Khayyam was born and died, as well as to famous legendary or quasi-legendary figures from Persian, and in one case, pre-Islamic Arabian, history. According to the great 11th century Persian national epic, of Firdausi, that is known as the Shah Name. Jamshid and Kai-Kobad, or Kai-Kawad, and Kai-Kosro, were important early kings of Iran. So was Zal, but the Shah Name seems to admire him even more as a great warrior. He was, in fact, the father of Rostam, who is perhaps the greatest of all Iranian warriors, with some intriguing parallels to the Greek Heracles or Hercules. And finally, Hatimatai was a Bedouin Arab prince and a poet of the period immediately preceding the rise of Islam. In fact, if his traditional death date of A.D. 579 is accurate, his life actually overlapped with that of the Prophet Muhammad, who was born circa A.D. 570. Hatim is proverbial still today for his extravagantly generous hospitality. Whether in Naishapur or Babylon, whether the cup with sweet or bitter run, the wine of life keeps oozing drop by drop. The leaves of life keep falling, one by one. Each morn a thousand roses brings, you say. Yes, but where leaves the rose of yesterday? And this first summer month that brings the rose shall take Jamshid and Kaikobad away. Well, let it take them. What have we to do with Kaikobad the Great or Kaikos Let Zal and Rustum bluster as they will, or Hatim call to supper. Heed not you. Even fame, wealth, and greatness, says the poem, are ephemeral. They perish with us. In his famous 1903 essay, A Free Man's Worship, the great British logician, philosopher, and mathematician Bertrand Russell, by far the most vocal atheist of his day in the English-speaking world, put a similar attitude this way. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius – are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Brief and powerless is man's life, On him and all his race the slow, sure doom Falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, Omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way, For man, condemned today to lose his dearest, Tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness, It remains only to cherish, ere yet the blow falls, The lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. Life, says the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, is scarcely even fully real. Rather, it resembles the images cast upon a wall by a magic lantern, an early forerunner of the film projector that was known to Edward Fitzgerald's Victorian audience, though significantly perhaps not to the historical Omar Khayyam's ancient Persian contemporaries. As a child, I was lulled to sleep by the ever-moving image of a steam locomotive, locomotive and a freight train projected onto my bedroom wall by a small revolving lamp. We are no other than a moving row of magic shadow shapes that come and go round with the sun-illumined lantern held in midnight by the master of the show. Next, in order to symbolize our fate as short-lived pawns manipulated by a greater power than we can contradict, he uses the image of a chess board. Chess, of course, is an ancient Indo-Iranian war game. Its alternating light and dark squares represent the days and nights of our mortal lives. We are but helpless pieces of the game he plays upon this checkerboard of nights and days, hither and thither moves and checks and slays, and one by one back in the closet lays. There's more than a hint of predestination as a theme here, and I'll return to that. First, though, comes a suggestion of the very modern and popular notion often associated with Sigmund Freud that our concepts of heaven are simply fantasy, mere wish-projection. Heaven but the vision of fulfilled desire, and hell the shadow from a soul on fire, cast on the darkness into which ourselves so late emerged from, shall so soon expire. In any event, nothing will matter in the long run. Whether or not we discipline ourselves, work hard, and restrain our appetites, in the end we'll all die, and it will have made no real difference. To put it bluntly, and the poem does put it bluntly, We will all all turn into compost, so we might as well live it up while we can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. And those who husbanded the golden grain, and those who flung it to the winds like rain, alike to no such aureate earth are turned as buried once men want dug up again. The worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes, or it prospers, and anon, like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two, is gone. In order to illustrate its point about the transitory nature of fame, greatness, beauty, and achievement, the Rubayat of Omar Khayyam again cites the legendary Persian king Jamshid and the historical 5th century Persian king Bahram Gur, who was famous for his exploits as a great hunter. Both of them also figure prominently in the Shah Name. Think in this battered caravan Sarai, whose portals are alternate night and day, how sultan after sultan with his pomp abode his destined hour and went his way. They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Jamshid gloried and rank deep, and Bahram, that great hunter, the wild ass stamps o'er his head but cannot break his sleep. I sometimes think that never blows so red the rose as where some buried Caesar bled, that every hyacinth the garden wears dropped in her lap from some once lovely head. And this reviving herb, whose tender green fledges the river lip on which we lean, i lean upon it lightly, for who knows from what once lovely lip it springs unseen. For some we loved, the loveliest and the best, that from his vintage rolling time hath pressed, have drunk their cup a round or two before, But one by one crept silently to rest. And we that now make merry in the room they left, and summer dresses in new bloom, ourselves must we beneath the couch of earth descend, ourselves to make a couch. For whom? The poem uses images of the palace servants of a sultan to make its point that none of us, no matter how exalted our rank, is irreplaceable. A farash was a menial member of the waitstaff, scurrying silently about to do the bidding of his master, and a was a cupbearer, fulfilling the master's empty or filling refilling the master's empty wine glass and the glasses of his guests. Here though the master is no mortal, but rather God, or fate or destiny, and even Sultans, the term Sultan comes from an Arabic word for power, are merely destiny's passing guests. Tis but a tent where it takes One day's rest, a sultan to the realm of death addressed. The sultan rises, and the dark Farash strikes, and prepares it for another guest. And fear not, lest existence closing your account and mine should know the like no more. The eternal sake from that bowl has poured millions of bubbles like us, and will pour. When you and I behind the veil are past, oh, but the long, long while the world shall last, which of our coming and departure heeds as the sea's self, Should he the pebble cast? A moment's halt, a momentary waste of being From the well amid the waste, And, lo, the phantom caravan has reached The nothing it set out from. Oh, make haste! So how should we respond to the seemingly pointless world? The poem has already given us its answer, That we should respond by simply seeking pleasure Where we can get it, while we can get it. But it restates that point many times over In memorable stanzas, Come, fill the cup, and in the fire of spring your winter garment of repentance fling. The bird of time has but a little way to flutter, and the bird is on the wing. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. Oh, wilderness, were paradise enow, enow being a word for enough. Some for the glories of this world, and some sigh for the prophet's paradise to come. Huh? Take the cash, and let the credit go nor heed the rumble of a distant drum. Ah, my beloved, fill the cup that clears today of past regrets and future years. Tomorrow, why, tomorrow, I may be myself with yesterday's seven thousand years. And lately by the tavern door agape came shining through the dusk an angel shape bearing a vessel on its shoulder. And he bade me taste it, and twas the grape, the grape that can with the logic absolute the two-and-seventy-jarring sects confute the sovereign alchemist that in a trice Life's leaden metal into gold transmute. I'll make the most of what we yet may spend Before we too into the dust descend, Dust into dust, and under dust to lie Sands wine, sands song, sands singer, and sans end. Then to the lip of this poor earthen urn I leaned the secret of my life to learn, And lip to lip it murmured, While you live, drink, for once dead you never shall return. Rather morbidly, the poem imagines that the clay goblet containing the wine from which the speaker is drinking may actually be made from the clay of a cemetery, from a grave whose occupant once lived and loved as we ourselves now briefly do. After all, was not Adam made originally from the dust of the earth? In the words of the funeral service as given in the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer, We commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I think the vessel that with fugitive articulation answered once did live and drink. And ah, the passive lip I kissed, how many kisses might it take and give? And has not such a story from of old down man's successive generations rolled, of such a clod of saturated earth cast by the maker into human mold? Accordingly, supposedly sharing the thoughts of the eleventh-century polymath Omar Khayyam, the poem advises us to waste not your hour, nor in the vain pursuit of this and that endeavor and dispute, better be jocund with the fruitful grape than sadden after none or bitter fruit. You know, my friends, with what a brave carouse I made a second marriage in my house, divorced old barren reason from my bed, and took the daughter of the vine to spouse. Yesterday this day's madness did prepare. Tomorrow's silence, triumph, or despair. Drink, for you know not whence you came, nor why. Drink, for you know not why you go, nor where. Ah. Uh, with the grape my fading life provide, and wash the body whence the life has died, and lay me shrouded in the living leaf by some not unfrequented garden side, that even my buried ashes, such a snare of vintage, shall fling up into the air, as not a true believer passing by, but shall be overtaken unaware. But this pose, for such it seems to be, is very difficult to reconcile with what we know of the real historical khayyam. A man who used the daylight hours to teach and write treatises about algebra, geometry, various other sciences, and theology. A man who spent his evenings at the royal court advising the sultan. A man who stayed up late at night to observe the motions of the stars and the planets while brilliantly revising the astronomical calendar. Uh, Omar scarcely seems to have abandoned endeavors and to have divorced himself from, from reason. Ah, by my computations, people say, reduce the year to better reckoning? Uh, Nay, it was only striking from the calendar unborn tomorrow and dead yesterday. It seems that the narrator is striking a pose an attitude. He is pretending to be a wastrel and a libertine quite unlike the historical Omar Khayyam, quite entirely unlike anything that the productive polymath Omar Nizaburi could conceivably have been. Indeed, the idols I have loved so long have done my credit in this world much wrong, have drowned my glory in a shallow cup, and sold my reputation for a song. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. And much as wine has played the infidel, and robbed me of my robe of honor, well, I wonder often what the vintners buy one half so precious as the stuff they sell. The narrator of the poem appears to assume a fictional persona. Edward Fitzgerald seems to have been quite a private person who, because he was independently wealthy, didn't need to work at a day job. But the publicly much-involved Omar Khayyam seems very unlike the libertine depicted in these verses. We come now to another major theme of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, its emphasis on fate. This is also a theme among not a few modern materialistic naturalists who often deny genuine human agency. And indeed, a world made up only of purposeless material objects and governed entirely by impersonal laws is likely to be a deterministic one. Consequently, the poem asserts a strongly deterministic worldview. The moving finger writes, and having written and having writ moves on. Nor all your piety nor wit Shall lure it back to cancel half a line, Nor all your tears wash out a word of it. And that inverted bowl they call the sky, Where under crawling, cooped, we live and die, Lift not your hands to it for help, For it as impotently moves as you or I. With earth's first clay they did the last man need, And there of the last harvest sowed the seed, And the first morning of creation Wrote what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. Sir Francis Crick shared the 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with James Watson and Maurice Wilkins for their discovery with Rosalind Franklin of the helical structure of the DNA molecule. In his later years especially, Sir Francis was a very outspoken atheist who did not hesitate even slightly to draw the implications of his thoroughgoing materialism. Quote, The astonishing hypothesis is that you, quote-unquote, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. As Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased it, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. I like the response to such notions of the American essayist Curtis White. The thing that I find most inscrutable about all of the recent books and essays that have sought to give mechanistic explanations for consciousness, personality, emotions, creativity, the whole human sensorium, is how happy the authors seem about it. They're nearly giddy with the excitement. And so, for some reason, are many of their readers. But for me, as Dylan's saying, they're just selling postcards of The Hanging. One of the most powerful scenes in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and its longest sustained sequence is set on an evening during the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, during which devout practitioners of the faith abstain from all food and drink and other kinds of sensory pleasure from sunrise in the morning till the setting of the sun at evening. The narrator of the poem enters into a potter's studio, where all manner of pots, plainly representing different types of people, sit on the floor on tables and on shelves. Some of them are malformed, presumably in the various ways, not just physical, but mental, emotional, and psychological, that we humans actually are. One of them is a Sufi. Sufism is the mystical tradition in Islam, important strands of which have focused on trying to achieve oneness with God, or perhaps better on striving to recognize the oneness of all things, including the divine, that according to Sufism already exists. All of them are speculating rather self-importantly about the potter, God, fate, destiny, or the universe that made them, and about the potter's attitude toward them, and they speculate, suggests the poem, without really real knowledge about what they can't really comprehend. As under cover of departing day, slunk hunger stricken Ramazan away, once more within the potter's house alone I stood, surrounded by the shapes of clay, Shapes of all sorts and sizes, great and small, that stood along the floor and by the wall. And some loquacious vessels were, and some listened, perhaps, but never talked at all. Said one among them, Surely not in vain my substance of the common earth was ta'en, And to this figure molded, to be broke or trampled back to shapeless earth again. After a momentary silence spake some vessel of a more ungainly make. They sneer at me for leaning all awry. What, did the hand then of the potter shake? We're at some one of the loquacious lot, "'I think a Sufi pipkin, waxing hot. "'All this of pot and potter. "'Tell me, then, who is the potter, pray, "'and who the pot?' "'Why,' said another, "'some there are who tell of one who threatens "'he will toss to hell the luckless pots "'he marred in making. "'Pish, he's a good fellow, and twill all be well.' "'Well,' murmured one, "'let whoso make or buy, "'my clay with long oblivion has gone dry, "'but fill me with the old familiar juice.' Methinks I might recover by and by. In the end, the narrator of the Romeyat of Ormachayim blames God, or fate, or the cosmos, not only for wine, but for all the temptations with with which this world confronts us. Why, be this juice the growth of God, who dare blaspheme the twisted tendril as a snare? A blessing, we should use it, should we not? And if a curse, why then, who set it there? O thou, who didst with pitfall and with gin beset the road I was to wander in, thou wilt not with predestined evil round and mesh, and then impute my fall to sin. O thou, who man of baser earth didst make, and even with paradise devise the snake, for all the sin wherewith the face of man is blackened, man's forgiveness give and take. Ah, love! Could you and I with him conspire to grasp this sorry scheme of things entire? Would not we shatter it to bits and then remold it nearer to the heart's desire? This depictive translation is how at least one poet, Edward Fitzgerald, responded to the disenchanted world seemingly offered up by Darwinism when it first rocked Victorian England. We are obviously no longer in the Victorian era, and one need not succumb to any such bleak worldview. It should be evident that the authors, reviewers, designers, source-checkers, copy editors, donors, and other volunteers who make the work of the Interpretive Foundation possible do not share the worldview of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. They have chosen to husband the golden grain, rather than, either literally or metaphorically, to be jocund with the fruitful grape and to divorce reason. Indeed, more like the remarkably productive historical Omar Khayyam, the overwhelming majority of our writers and editors and other volunteers contribute their time and effort on top of their full-time employment and other obligations elsewhere. This for the simple reason that they do not find themselves in a meaningless universe without hope, but instead recognize themselves as citizens of the kingdom of God and look forward to still greater things yet to come. Serving in the kingdom, and yes, striving to command and defend the kingdom via the Interpreter Foundation, is mostly a pleasure because, as I also do, they believe. With regard to this particular volume, I thank the authors and others who have contributed their work and the managing or production editors, Alan Wyatt, Jeff Lindsay, and Godfrey Ellis, who have overseen and directed it. I'm deeply appreciative. This has been a recording of In This Battered Caravanserai, originally published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, volume 56, 2023. Read by Daniel C. Peterson. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, if the journal and its website are credited, and if it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Latter-day Saint scripture and related topics can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.